It's go time. A very tumultuous week in the Canadian Football League, the passing of a legend. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble, Don Charbonneau along with Heath Graham. Before we get to our thoughts on George Reed, let's talk about some other stuff that happened in the Canadian Football League, namely the Jezrin Antwi onside punt that some people have railed against and I absolutely applaud for its sheer genius. And this is an American offensive coordinator that called the play. Brilliant play. I, I love it. Um, I know we talk at length often on this show about quirky plays and rules in the CFL that make it unique. And this is certainly one of them. It, it got international attention. It was tweeted by American sports broadcasters and people were wondering if this was a joke. How was this possible? And it really boils down to knowing your history of the league of North American football, as it were, in general, and its evolution from rugby. And this was was one of those holdover plays you do not see it often. Interestingly enough, Antwi tried it in a previous season and was unsuccessful because he missed the ball. Uh, so it wasn't a, a kick, and uh, this time they pulled it off to perfection. That's the thing. It's not the easiest play to try. Antwi did exactly what he had to do. He bent over, he dropped the ball, and he deliberately kicked it. Now, this is different than a dribbled ball. We've heard of dribble balls in the CFL, but that that happens when the ball is loose and it gets kicked. That's different than this is a control. This is essentially Antwi becoming a punter. And what he does is he kicks the ball, and it's so significant. The Alouettes are set up at their 27-yard line. It's second and 18. They are in big trouble right here. They throw that out pass to Antwi as he comes out of the backfield. But what he has to do is he has to punt the ball prior to crossing the line of scrimmage and then recover it beyond the line of scrimmage. As the kicker, he or any other player behind him on the Alouettes who has been behind him when he kicked the ball are also eligible to recover the football. Antwi, because the Red Blacks are playing cover 18? <laughs> I don't know what you call that. They are so far back, they're hardly in frame. And seeing the opportunity, knows the rule. You kick it, the ball goes over the line of scrimmage, you recover it as the kicker, you reset the downs, and it's first down. Absolute genius. It was, and a couple of really quirky parts of it. Had Ottawa covered the punt more closely, they could have been called for for no yards as well if they were inside that five-yard window. Not Antwi, though. He's the kicker. He can't be called for that. Right, my bad. Right. The only players that could be called for no yards in that circumstance are the players that are in an offside position, i.e. the guys that are forward of Antwi when he kicks the ball for the Alouette. So that would be the receivers, typically. The other thing that you have to be clear of is that the the line, the guys that are on the line, can't be going down the field either. It's sort of like that punt situation where they have to stay back, wait for the punt, and then they can go. The Alouette's line did their job. They stayed put. They didn't march down the field too early either. It was a, a, a play where Montreal really caught Ottawa off guard. 
and a very unique play. I am, I'm thinking back to the Labor Day weekend game between the Bombers and Rough Riders, where the Riders started the game with an onside kick, caught Winnipeg off guard. If your coordinators and your, your players are smart enough to recognize these situations, and knowing that Ottawa was playing so far off the ball, it was a perfect opportunity to pull this play off, and they did it successfully. So the the net yards on the punt was about one yard, if that. He he got to the line of scrimmage, kicked it forward over the line, did exactly what he had to do, and to turn a second and 18 to all of a sudden a first and 10 with only gaining one yard is is an incredible smart play and and perfect ability to pull it off. And that's how I feel about it. Even watching it at the time, I understood what was going on. I was curious to find out how the officials would interpret it. They checked. Everything was to the book. This rule has been there. There's no reason for it to be ever removed. It's Article 14 in the rule book about kicks. And it's recovery of your own kick. And essentially the kicker or onside player may recover the kick across the line of scrimmage, in which case the ensuing down shall be first down, whether or not the original yardage has been gained. That's been sitting there forever. This is just knowing what the rules are and how you can use them. All this crap that I read about this shouldn't be part of the game. This isn't football. Like this is not America. This is Canada. This is the Canadian Football League. This is our game. This is part of our heritage, part of our uniqueness, and part of our creativity. The only thing that I was unsure of when I first saw the play was that it was a forward pass from Cody Fajardo to Deshron Antwi, and I was not sure if the punt could be effective after a forward pass. So once I realized and, and once I learned that that was legal, there was nothing in the play that was not by the book. Uh, that was just an, an interesting, another interesting situation was you look at a forward pass versus a lateral to get that ball in motion. And what it means for any team going forward, you're going to have to spy that back coming out of the backfield on a second and long. You've got to pay attention. It's not the first time we've seen a team try an onside putt. We saw one in the Grey Cup in 1989, the last play of the game, the Ticats catch the kickoff, punt it back in the hopes that one of their guys that are on side can go down the field and recover the football. Unfortunately, it lands into, in a Rough Rider's arms, and that's the end of the game for that Grey Cup. Uh, the Calgary Stampeders tried it against the BC Lions where Mike Juhas caught a ball 20 yards down the field, turned around and punted it into the end zone. The Lions, because of the bounce, couldn't recover it. The Stampeders did and looked like they'd won the game. But because we didn't have proper camera angles, for whatever reason, the officials on the field ruled it no yards. And on the Stampeders were livid, of course. Matt Dunnigan was the coach. It was a shame because that was a brilliant play that was taken away because people weren't paying attention to what was going on. Uh, you mentioned in the future... Defensive coordinators and, and defenses are going to have to start to spy that play. And what that does is it will prevent some of these short kicks from happening, but will also take a cover man out of the the deep routes and maybe will open up some of those passing plays for longer yards. It's second and 18 is a tall ask. It's not impossible, and we do see it on more than one occasion on any given weekend in the CFL that that somebody converts on a second and and 15 or longer, 
I know there was a game where Zach Kolaris converted on a second and I think it was 36 earlier this season as well. So these things do happen, but now that defense has to be really careful about where everybody is on the field. Exactly. And let's give the Alouettes all the praise in the world for divining that play, for executing that play, and for being successful on that play. Let's talk now about the crossover. The East is not available to the West anymore. However, the West is available to the East if Ottawa, again, we say if Ottawa can win out, that means beating the Alouettes and beating the Argos twice, they can head West if nobody in the West reaches seven wins for the season. And what that means is they are banking on Saskatchewan not winning anymore. Saskatchewan would have to lose out for this to be a possibility. Calgary and Edmonton both sitting at four wins right now as well. So realistically, it boils down mostly to what Saskatchewan does. The biggest question mark or the the quickest way to eliminate Ottawa from the crossover is uh, another Saskatchewan Rough Riders win. However, they do have a game against Calgary coming up. It's going to be a tough one. Great to see a, a playoff push still going. We we saw Hamilton clinch this past weekend as well. So the playoff picture is getting sorted. This is the last spot still on the table. And realistically, there are four teams still vying for that spot. It's a long road for any of those other teams if you're not named Saskatchewan. The problem with the Rough Riders right now is they're back onto their second half skid that they've been famous for. And will they win another game? If they lose to Calgary, then Calgary still has to win another game somewhere or two. Edmonton, they've got to hope everyone stays at six as well. They've got to win out. So it's it's kind of all these faint hope clauses that are all coming together. And if you're Saskatchewan, just win against Calgary and all this goes away. Exactly. That's got to be on their minds for sure. That This is the, the big weekend for them. They do have a tough time against the Calgary Stampeders historically over the last several seasons. This is their best opportunity because of the record that Calgary has. The Stampeders have been struggling all season. This is their, their best chance to, to stamp them out and, and secure that playoff spot. Stampeders and the Elks at four wins. Edmonton, they're really up against it. They've got to win in Toronto. They've got to do all kinds of things against powerful opponents and then hope that Saskatchewan and Calgary just fall through the floor. Edmonton gets the seven wins. Ottawa's out of the picture. We went through all of the scenarios last week, and the only thing that became clear was Hamilton clinching a playoff spot. No, Montreal clinched as well. They're in. Right. Because they beat Ottawa. Ottawa can't catch them anymore. Every week we're going to get into somebody else is going to be eliminated. As and, and if you're the CFL, and we talked about this last week, right? You want, at the end of the season, everybody to be in the conversation as deep into the season as is possible. Meaningful games, whether that's vying for first place, whether that's fighting for a home field, getting in the playoffs in general. There is something to play for. We've seen a couple things get wrapped up here already, but there are some huge games coming up that are going to determine who plays where this playoff season? This weekend, we saw two of the rookie, if you want to call them phenoms, 
in the CFL get benched. We saw Taylor Powell in Hamilton against Calgary ride the pine once Matthew Schiltz got hot. And Dustin Crum, late in the game, was sat down in favor of Nick Arbuckle when the Red Blacks were in trouble. A rare Nick Arbuckle sighting. Good to see him back. And he actually performed quite well in relief in this one. I was more surprised to see Taylor Powell get replaced by Matthew Schiltz, but the moral of the story for Hamilton is don't pick one of their quarterbacks in fantasy because apparently Bo Levi Mitchell has been practicing and may see a return here as well. So my expectation, especially since they've clinched a playoff spot, is you might see them working all three of those quarterbacks into game action and getting them ready to go. Whether any of them play all four quarters remains to be seen. Dustin Crum, we know, exploded on the scene with a big win, a big comeback win, showed a lot of scrambling ability and keeping his team in games with a chance to win late early on in his starting career. That has fallen off a little bit of late. He has been been struggling. That Ottawa offense hasn't been super sharp. Nick Arbuckle has been bounced around the league over the last several seasons. We talked when Crum kind of took over the starting job of whether we would see Arbuckle as a starter in the league again. That remains to be seen what happens moving forward. But like I said, he did show some some good things in that game. Seven completions on seven completions on nine attempts and did get that Ottawa offense a little bit back into the game. The one I I'm more concerned about is the Taylor Powell situation. He, other than the Toronto Argonauts, has played very, very well against everybody and won. I don't know if that is enough to put him on the bench. I, I heard Steinauer talk, Orlando Steinauer, the coach of the Tiger Cats, talk about getting both quarterbacks into the game, but then when Schultz got a hot hand, he decided to leave him in. And the one thing that Schiltz did more of than Powell is Schiltz pressed deep where Powell tends to take the under route and being safe. Schiltz took a chance and tried to make things happen. That helped the Hamilton cause against the Calgary Stampeders. I don't know if you're Taylor Powell, what you're thinking right now. I wonder if you think you've done enough to stay as the starter and here you are now coming off of some big games most likely not seeing the field for a while. Yeah, it's a tough situation. We'll see how Taylor Powell responds. If you look at where he stood in the depth chart at the start of the season, if he fully embraced his role knowing he's there to be that third guy behind a legend of a veteran in Bolivar Mitchell and Matthew Schiltz, who's proven to be quite capable over the last few seasons between Montreal and Hamilton. Yes, he got his chance. He has shown some good things. But I believe the Tiger Cats still feel their best chance to win is with one of those other two guys running that offense. In the opening, we talked about the passing of George Reed. And for the people of Saskatchewan, Ron Lancaster and George Reed were synonymous with the Rough Riders. They were a tandem that played together from 1963 to 1975. And there's a very iconic photo of Ron Lancaster handing the ball off to George Reed that has been used 
on book covers, on the Rough Rider webpage, everywhere. And it just symbolizes what those two meant to the team, and George Reed especially, because of his community work, his charity work. He did a lot of outreach in the community. He was just a supremely classy individual. One of the great things about attending a game at Mosaic Stadium over the last few years, and and this is coming from somebody that grew up in another province cheering for another team, but every game that George Reed was in attendance, at some point, usually later on in the game, the cameras pan over and George Reed is up on the big screen. And no matter the score of the game, no matter the situation, the fans all turn and cheer. And I've been a part of that and I'm I'm honored to say at the last Labor Day Classic weekend game, I I applauded George Reed as well. I didn't know at the time that that was going to be the last time that I saw him in attendance at a game. He has been to, I believe, every home game this season up to this point, including the, the most recent one. So uh, a very, a very sad day for Rough Rider fans and for football fans in general across the league. Um, as you said, a, a true legend and the, still the second leading rusher in CFL history behind only Mike Pringle, uh, a real legend. And one of the great things about the CFL has always been those traditions and how these great American players that come up and played in the CFL fell in love with Canada, stayed involved in the communities. There was a bit of a gap there where George Reed wasn't as involved, but the the big return and the warm receptions he continued to get at Mosaic were, I'm sure, very special to him and his family. Eleven times he rushed for over a thousand yards in a season. He was inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in 1979. He was an all-star from 65 to 1975. You can go up and down the ladder in terms of the stats that he provided, but as you mentioned, in terms of rushing, 16,116 yards, second only to Mike Pringle, another Washington State grad. And Mike Pringle, who put out a posting acknowledging his sadness at the passing of George Reed. Both went to Washington State. They had birthdays a day apart. And of course, George Reed was on hand when Mike Pringle passed him for the rushing total. When George Reed retired, his most of his records stayed put for at least 30 years. One still remains, and that's total touchdowns. That's still his. And you look at the the consistency of his career. You mentioned 11 seasons rushing for 1,000 yards or more. And that includes his last season with the Rough Riders, where he rushed for 1,454 yards in 1975. So that's a, a huge number and a, a level of consistency that you don't often see with a running back. Many times later on in their careers, those numbers seem to drop a bit. So for him to still be that dominant that late in his career shows what a true talent he was. The season that broke the string was 1970, and he had been injured that year. And in the last two games of the season, the Riders rested him for the playoffs. The Riders finished 14-2 and two that year. During Ronnie and George's tenure, that 63-76 to 76 era, Saskatchewan, for the most part, was the most dominant football team in any football league by record. The only thing it didn't translate to was Grey Cup wins. But they did win in 1966 
and we'll play a little clip from the most important touchdown in that football game. Over Ottawa. Seven minutes, 23 seconds remaining. The ends are closed in. Full backfield. George Reed. He drives out beyond. He broke the tackle of at least two attempted tacklers, Bloom and Conroy, before Gaines eventually pinned him. But that moves the yardsticks. Another demonstration of Reed's great power. And if you notice, Reed is kicking the ground because he thought he was a, he thought he was going to be away. Here we'll see it on the isolated. Watch him jump through, breaks his way out, kicks his way out of another tackle, and only one man brought him down. 21 carries for 103 yards by George Reed. Horse down Saskatchewan. The Ottawa 31. Reed again gets the call. He may be gone. Touchdown. Second down. We open our review of with the Toronto Argonauts going to Winnipeg to kick it all off. And of course, we had discussed the fact that Chad Kelly wasn't going to be starting the football game that the Argonauts were not putting their, all their best players forward. But one of the things that we didn't countenance, and it almost came to fruition, was what if Toronto actually, with a lesser lineup, went out and won? And until late in the fourth quarter, that game was in doubt. It was. The final score, 31-21. One of the great things with Winnipeg this year is we've talked about games that appear to be close, and then they end up winning by multiple scores. This is not the first time it's happened this year. Winnipeg scored early, and then they scored late when it was in, when it mattered the most. And in between, we saw some things from Cameron Dukes and that Toronto Argonauts offense that did give them some challenges. Cameron Dukes, I think, made a statement. I was saying this could be a signature party to argue that he could be a starter. 17-24 for 231 and a touchdown. A lot of people were very confused as to why Brian Scott was put on the field late in the game. With the game and the balance, the feeling was that if Dukes was doing well enough, why not keep him out there and actually go out and win this thing? And as as Davis Sanchez said on the panel, on TSN's panel, this was a no-lose situation for Toronto, no matter what happened. If they won, they're in Winnipeg's heads. If they lose close, they're in Winnipeg's heads. And if they lose big, well, they're supposed to. Exactly. We... Myself included, expected a, a big win by the Bombers. If not for a late field goal, they would not have covered the spread. It was one of those situations where Argonauts hung around, hung around. Winnipeg did what they have been known for, and that is shutting down in the fourth quarter. Argonauts had one field goal. Winnipeg had 15 points in the fourth quarter, and that was the, the big difference. Once again, we saw Zach Kolaris be inconsistent in that he did throw for 258 yards and a touchdown, but once again, another costly interception. And Brady Oliveira had a fumble as well. Something that in that Ottawa game that we referred to earlier, way back when, when Dustin Crum had his coming out party, that hurt the Bombers massively. Turnovers are going to be the Achilles heel, Achilles heel of this offense. They are certainly susceptible to them, and especially the back half of this season, the Bombers have been giving them up more and more. It has to be an area of concern for Mike O'Shea and that team. When I start looking at the standings and 
the the tiers of teams in the league. I would still put the Toronto Argonauts right now as the Grey Cup favorite. I would say of that top tier of Winnipeg, Toronto, and BC, the Argonauts are the most consistent of the three. I would put the BC Lions as the most explosive, and I'd put the Winnipeg Blue Bombers as the highest ceiling. We saw especially their game earlier on against the BC Lions this season and the Banjo Bowl against the Rough Riders. When Winnipeg is firing on all cylinders, I don't know if there's a team that can keep up. But you look at what the Argonauts have done all year with just their consistency. They haven't necessarily blown teams out of the water. When Chad Kelly is running that offense, he's putting up the numbers necessary to win. And and it's that level that I think has them at that number one overall seed. What was brought up by Doug Brown on the Blue Bomber radio network during the game was the Blue Bombers have struggled against running quarterbacks all season. Trey Ford is going to be a problem against Cameron Dukes. They didn't seem to know how to contain him against Dustin Crum. They didn't have an answer for him either. It seems as though if you've got a quarterback that's mobile, the Bombers are in trouble. They are in one thing we've seen other teams do, and, and Cam Judge comes to mind specifically for the Calgary Stampeders, is they will spy that quarterback. Winnipeg seems to be reluctant to do that consistently when you've got a quarterback playing against them that can run the ball. The other situation is you've got the two defensive ends in Willie Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat often going for the sack and not necessarily for the contain. And once you start to try to close that pocket and the quarterback can loop around the outside. He's got room to go there, not just up the middle, but then they can go to the sidelines and start to angle. Sergio Castillo, six of seven against the Argonauts. When your field goal kicker is trying seven field goals in a single contest, you know that your offense is working well, but they're not finishing. And we've seen that from some other teams this season as well. I would say this game was a wake-up call for the Bombers. Their home record indicates that they are very strong. I think a lot of them were taken by surprise at how competitive the Argonauts were with Cameron Dukes as the quarterback. We'll see where they go from here, and as we'll get to our predictions in third down, another big game coming up this weekend for the Bombers. The nightcap on Friday saw the Saskatchewan Rough Riders go in to play the BC Lions. A big crowd on hand in BC to watch this one. And the Rough Riders for three quarters looked dominated. And again, as they tried to do against Ottawa, get a late touchdown, get the short kick, try to come back. Didn't work. The Rough Riders fall short. The only thing they did do was defeat BC's cover. 33-26, to the final Riders scoring 15 points in the fourth quarter, but a lot of it coming deep in garbage time. Incredible passing yard stats in this one as well. Jake Dolagala, 31 for 45, 409 yards, but he was only the second leading passer in this game as Vernon Adams went 27 for 36 for 458 and three touchdowns. So this was an opportunity to see Dolagala air it out. A couple of interceptions cost them and Vernon Adams when he is on is one of the most exciting quarterbacks in the league and this was a a night where he was on full display. The one thing that the Rough Riders did do for once in this September forward run is contain the rushing attack of their opponent. The Lions didn't do much 
but nor did the Rough Riders. In fact, Frankie Hickson led the Rough Riders with 22 yards on 10 carries at 2.2 yards per rush. You're not scaring anybody. The Riders have now lost four in a row. They haven't won since Labor Day against Winnipeg. This has eerie hallmarks to what happened last year. Is this team beginning to tighten up? They might be the only thing that they've got really going for them this year is the struggle of the Calgary Stampeders and that they've still got a a two-game cushion this late in the season. As we said, it's going to take one win to get them up to that seven-win threshold. A lot to watch in these coming weeks. Now, you talked about the Rough Riders rushing game. BC wasn't much better. Take one Mizell, 10 carries for 38 yards, so not a big game on the ground. But when you have over 860 yards passing, you're not going to see a lot of big running plays. The Rough Riders' defense, and we've talked about it, were the linchpin to hold this team in games in the early part of the season while something has gone horribly wrong since. They lead the league in spades and points allowed at 458. If you look at the Edmonton Elks, the Rough Riders and the Elks mirror each other in terms of points scored versus points allowed. The Elks have won four, the Riders six. You can see how nuanced winning and losing is in the Canadian Football League. You throw out a couple of games where the BC Lions dominated the Elks and and held them off the scoreboard, that points for and against suddenly gets a lot closer. Now, if you wanted to throw away the Banjo Bowl game against Winnipeg for the Riders, those are the biggest point differential games so far this season for either of those two teams. But you're right, that margin from, from win to loss is so thin. And any team that's going to make the playoffs, you want to see that pretty close or at least a little bit on the positive side, that Rough Riders offense is having a hard time covering for some of those mistakes of the defense. The other thing that the Rough Riders are struggling is coming out of the gate in the second half. The third quarters for this team have been just terrible in the last few weeks. And for whatever reason, they seem to be waiting 15 minutes before they get going again. And we saw that again this week. They were held off the scoreboard in the third quarter, outscored 14 to nothing pushed back at the end and and won that point battle 15 nothing in the fourth quarter unfortunately they were just too far behind at that point to uh to close this one out we move to saturday afternoon and the montreal alouettes go into ottawa to play the ottawa red blacks a huge contingent of alouette fans make the trip another big crowd on hand and the alouettes dominate lead 15 nothing at halftime roll to a 32 to 15 win in a game that They were never really threatened. A very consistent performance by the Alouettes. Seven points in the first quarter, eight in the second, seven, ten. So they were successful on offense in all four quarters, holding Ottawa off the score sheet until the fourth quarter. So Ottawa did score a couple of touchdowns late, get this one to 32-15. But you're right, it was a, a game where the Alouettes were in control seemingly right from the start. Ottawa struggled to get things going and really had a tough time putting any points on the board. Dustin Crum with a painful interception in the end that cost Ottawa big early. 25 of 34 for 247 yards, two interceptions. Cody Fajardo, now that the running game seems to be better, not so much reliance on his throwing ability. 15 to 20 for 178 and a touchdown. William Stanback had a big night. 13 carries, 85 yards, a 24 long, which went for a touchdown. We've seen a resurgence from William Stanback over the last 
month and a half, really struggled out of the gate, and it looked like he was almost an afterthought in that Montreal offense. I don't know if he had some nagging injuries that he's fully recovered from now when he's able to really run the ball with power and purpose, but this was great to see. I, I do think that when he is healthy and and capable that William Stanback is one of the top running backs in the league, and he showed it again this week. Real nice to see him return to form. How much of an impact has Darnell Sankey been? He had four tackles in this game and a quarterback sack. What a get for the Alouettes. It was a a fantastic pickup. Darnell Sankey has been a star in this league with Calgary, with Saskatchewan. Now he's getting the chance with the Alouettes. Believe that Montreal had a strong defense right from the start of this season, but adding a guy of Darnell Sankey's caliber certainly doesn't hurt them. And let's give a shout out to Marc-Antoine Ducroix, who has... Now two interceptions for touchdowns. And of course, we talked about the killer interception from Dustin Crum. This was it, where he threw it out. DeCroix stepped in front. Crum was the only one that had the chance. And I loved what DeCroix did. Slowed down just enough to maintain his balance as Crum came at him. Let him make the attempt. He jumped over it and bam, he was gone for the score. 108 yards. Reminiscent of what the Alouettes did last year in Edmonton to win a football game. Marc-Antoine Decois is making a push to be the most outstanding defensive player in the league this year. He has had spectacular interceptions, 108 yards. You can't really get much of a longer interception return for a touchdown in this league. And he looked like he had the energy to get all the way. Sometimes when these defensive players get running down the field that far, they're stumbling, rumbling, fumbling, tumbling. But he maintained his balance and, and ran this one back. I would put him as the number one defensive player for the Alouettes. For sure at this point, he has to be in that conversation come award season. The late game, the Calgary Stampeders were in Hamilton to take on the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And the Stampeders, of course, needing the win to make some noise in the West. The Ticats, of course, needing the win to secure a playoff spot in the East. Hamilton wins, and it's Matthew Schiltz who leads them to victory. We touched on this a little bit earlier, that quarterback situation in Hamilton. We've seen Hamilton not afraid to use multiple quarterbacks in that starter role or coming in in relief, and that can go all the way back to Zach Polaris and Jeremiah Mazzoli. We saw Mazzoli and Dane Evans. We've seen Matthew Schiltz come into the fold with Dane Evans as well, and now Olivier Mitchell looking like he is going to return from that leg injury before the end of this season. A good situation to have in that you've got now counting Taylor Powell, three capable quarterbacks, but how do you balance that? I'm sure all of them want the ball and want that opportunity. A similar situation to where you've got three all-star receivers on the field on a team. You've only got one ball. So how does that keep everybody happy? That's a great question. And that's where Scott Milanovic and Orlando Steinauer are going to get together and figure this out because I, I could see in Taylor Powell's eyes that he was hurt, that he wasn't out there in that big game. He's, he's just starting his career. You've got to be cognizant of what's happening inside of his mind. Keep his confidence going because, it, yeah, he had a, a struggle of a start, two of six for 14 yards, but he hadn't done anything really wrong either. 
Schiltz comes in 11 and 19 for 225. And again, we talked about the deep pass. He found the deep pass and him and Tim White connected for a 70 yarder that really made a difference. And we were hoping that this was going to be an opportunity for the Calgary Stampeders to turn Jake Mayer loose. Once again, a very conservative night for the Stampeders. 26 of 44, 239 yards. His longest completion, only 17 yards. So I don't know what it's going to take. There are certainly capable receivers on offense for the Calgary Stampeders, but something is off and, and they are seemingly afraid to really push it down the field. Stampeders have the most passing yards of any team in the league. They also have the most field goal attempts, most points off field goals, and fewest touchdowns scored. They seem to be playing between the 20s, but they're not getting into the end zone. This was, if you remember back early in the season, the Tiger Cats were struggling with this. Well, the Alouettes, for instance, went down and scored five touchdowns against the Tiger Cats. The Tiger Cats came back and answered with five field goals. You can see where the disparity comes to the fore. Well, the Stampeders are in that same problem where they're relying so much on that field goal kicking game. And granted, Rennie Parrott is five of six. He did everything he needed to do for them. He can't be the guy that's doing all your scoring. You need him for spot duty. You want to be able to put the ball in the end zone. And they didn't score one touchdown, 22 to 15. And lots of points left on the board, as it were, if you're the Stampeders. You want your kickers to be kicking converts and not field goals. Where do you, where do you, what do you do with Pat DeMonico? It's either you say, okay, it's a learning curve. He'll be better next year or what? Because this team, in spite of numbers that would say otherwise, they are not winning football games. They're not scoring touchdowns. Something is off for sure. And, and this might be a situation where they're looking at another option on offense for the coaching staff in the, in the off season. Jake Mayer has answered some questions about whether he is a capable starter in this league. He has shown that he has that capability. His completion numbers are fantastic. His completion percentage, but it's just that lack of, of ability to move it down the field. You're right. It's, it's a game where they're counting on Rene Paredes to keep them in it by kicking field goals, but they need to find their way into the end zone. Let's give a huge shout out to Reggie Bagleton, who took a hellacious hit across the middle. I'm sure he's got bruised ribs, maybe cracked ribs, but stayed in the game. He, he just would not be told or would not listen to the idea of not playing. He gutted it out and caught four balls on the night. Mark and Michelle, 15 targets, only seven catches. With the injury struggles of Kadeem Carey this year, Reggie Bagleton is the, really that heart and soul of the Calgary Snapeaters offense. And he has shown it time and again. He's a leader on and off the field, very consistent. He doesn't drop a lot of passes. If you get it in there, chances are he's coming down with it. Michelle maybe needs to learn a little bit of that as well because seven receptions on 15 targets, he has to get more consistent to help his quarterback out. One of the joys of recording on a Tuesday night is sometimes the uh, odds for a football game are not up. And this week, Edmonton and Toronto's game on Friday, nobody's got a line on it, which says one of two things. Either they don't know what the Argonauts are going to do at quarterback, or they don't trust what the Argos are going to do at quarterback. 
interesting that it's the first game of the week and there are no odds currently available for it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Argonauts are going to win this game. If Chad Kelly starts, I would put their spread somewhere around 11 and a half. If Chad Kelly does not start and Cameron Dukes gets the number one reps again, I would put it down to probably about a three and a half point spread. Either way, I'm going to take the Argos in this one. I believe they will win this game. But again, they're they're in a situation where they've wrapped up first place. The spoils of that is that they get to dictate who plays and when and give them the opportunity to get best prepared for the playoffs as they see it. Edmonton, of course, has to win out to even have a chance at making the playoffs. Trey Ford, this will be the first time that he'll be in Toronto to play a football game. Of course, that's close to where he had his college career. I wish there were some odds, but we're having not found any. I'm thinking that the Argos at home, I just can't get away from them. They're undefeated at home. I think there's going to be some pride in keeping that record alive. Elks will provide everything that the Argonauts can handle. I've always been told that a home team gets a plus three in terms of the point spread, or a minus three, I should say. So if the Argos are favored by three and a half, say, I say the Argos cover the nightcap. And this is the one, if you were waiting for last week and thought, "Mm, maybe it isn't going to be as big, this one is as billed. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the BC Lions in winner-take-all, almost, first-place showdown. Lions at home, and this is all but a pick 'em. One negative 1.5 favorites. This is it. Here we go. This is the game that everyone's been waiting for. They've played each other twice earlier this season. The first one was a big road victory for the BC Lions. The second one was a big home win for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Neither game has been particularly close. There's a lot on the line, as you say. Winner of this one takes over sole possession of first place in the West and controls their own destiny over the final three weeks of the season to host the Western final. I like the Lions at home in this one. One and a half points is not a very big spread, so I'm going to take the Lions at home to cover. That being said, if Winnipeg comes in motivated, they could turn that the other way around. But my, my money this week is on the Lions. Local time in Winnipeg, this game will start at 10. Does that impact the Blue Bombers negatively? Because the game start time is going to be so late for them. I suppose it could. I don't necessarily put a lot in that. We'll see what happens. It's still a a late start even for BC local time from what they're accustomed to. Big game, and, and we want to see meaningful games this late in the season. This certainly is one. If Vernon Adams Jr. goes off early, as he's been doing the last few weeks, and dissects that Winnipeg defense, BC will easily cover. If, however, Jeff Coat and Jefferson, the two ends for the defensive line for the Blue Bombers, make life miserable for Vernon Adams and cause him to for- throw up interceptions, then it comes down to Zach Kolaris and what does he do? Claris has been middling on the road this year. He hasn't looked particularly well. This is going to be his kind of litmus test in terms of where are you at? Hamilton plays Saskatchewan on Saturday. It's the lone Saturday game. And the Rough Riders are four and a half point favorites going into this. 
justified given that this team is on a four game skid? Maybe not. I would think they should still be favored at home. I don't know about a four and a half. I would think more of a, a two and a half point spread. If the Riders are going to do anything this season, that turnaround has to start now. They have to get off of that skid. Hamilton, we don't know what their quarterback situation is going to be right now either. We could see Bo Levi Mitchell. We could see Matthew Schiltz. We could see Taylor Powell. We could see a combination, all three of them. I'm going to give the edge to the Riders at home. This is a, a game that they must win. They're going to have that fan support behind them. Saskatchewan fans know how important this one is. I like the Riders, and I will take them to cover four and a half. Since Labor Day, the Tiger Cats have beaten every team that they have faced except the Argonauts. Matthew Schiltz most likely will get the start. I don't think Bo Levi Mitchell is ready yet. Will Taylor Powell see some action? We'll see. I like the Tiger Cats mostly because I think they're a more motivated team. They've got the Grey Cup in their home stadium. If they can figure out how to get a home date on the way to that, that improves their odds immensely. This is an opportunity knowing that Montreal is playing Ottawa on Monday. They have to keep pace. They have to beat the Rough Riders. The Ticats defense may dictate terms in this one and, and cover or beat the spread, I should say. Final game is on Monday, Thanksgiving Monday here in Canada. Montreal Alouettes, who traditionally play home, get dates on Turkey Day, uh, are six and a half point favorites against Ottawa. I don't see how Ottawa really messes with Montreal on this day. Does Nick Arbuckle start? Uh, it's just really, really tough for the Red Blacks to, to scare anybody anymore. The last time I was... 100% certain that Ottawa was going to lose handily. They cued the crumb back. But this time I'm still sticking with the Montreal Alouettes. From what I've seen on that defense recently, Ottawa's offensive struggles are going to continue. I'm taking the Alouettes at home to cover. Montreal at home has been very good. The only teams that have come into Montreal and beaten them are the teams that are above them in the standings. Everybody else, equivalent or below, they have handled easily. I don't see anything different for this. Alouettes have to win this game regardless of what Hamilton does against Saskatchewan. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.